Fulcher, welcome to the August episode of the Celtic Club Melbourne podcast and all things Melbourne Irish. I'm Claire Murphy and it's great to have your company as always. My guest this month is the 2019 Melbourne Rose of Tralee, Jordan Balfrey, a forensic mental health occupational therapist from Limerick. Jordan shares her insights into the Rose of Tralee competition, being a young Irish expat in Australia and working in mental health. So my name is Jordan Balfrey. I am originally a Limerick lady. Um, and I moved here to Melbourne in January of 2018. I'm currently working as a forensic mental health occupational therapist in the prison services, which is a bit of a mouthful to try and get out. <laughs> um, and yeah, I've been really enjoying life here for the past year and a half. And in May of this year, I was crowned the Melbourne Rose of Tralee, which is extremely exciting. So at the minute, I'm just trying to get myself prepared to head home to the Dome. So I'll be flying out next Monday week. Um, to kind of start all those celebrations. So really looking forward to that. Jordan, welcome. We're so pleased you could fit us in at the Celtic Club podcast for a chat today. No problem at all. Happy to be here. Right. Could you tell us a little bit how you came to move from Limerick to Melbourne? So it's kind of, a, I guess, a bit of a long-winded story. So I guess I, back in 2015, I was kind of in the middle of a master's in the University of Limerick. So I've done a master's in occupational therapy. And myself and my partner, John, we always knew that we wanted to move somewhere, so we just didn't really quite know where it was going to be. Um, and we both love Ireland, but I think, you know, there comes a time in maybe your early 20s where you think there's a big world out there and you kind of want to go and explore it. So we were in such a privileged position looking back now where, you know, he's an engineer. I was going to be qualified as an occupational therapist. Um, you know, we were both kind of well set up in our professions to be able to travel with that. So I think we kind of started narrowing things down ever so slowly. Um, and thinking back now, it does sound quite bizarre that you start with the world, then you narrow it down and, and kind of see where you're going to end up after that. So, I mean, English is our only language, really, aside from, you know, trying to make a stab at Irish the odd time. But so that kind of narrowed us down to the likes of Canada, New Zealand, Australia. And then I had a really, really fantastic um, supervisor after I had graduated and started in the workforce. So I kind of went to her for a bit of mentorship and I was asking her, you know, where would I see myself going from an occupational therapy perspective in terms of what would be a good career move? And she basically, she kind of pointed me towards Australia. She said, look, if you want to go and progress and, and learn new skills and, and be able to come back, if that was a decision that we wanted to make in the future, um, with, you know, coming from a place where they really do value their healthcare, then she was saying Australia is the place to go. So we narrowed it down to Australia and then it was very much kind of um, relying on Dr. Google to tell us whether it was going to be Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, um, that kind of thing. And eventually we, our kind of gut feeling was to come to Melbourne and, and then we've decided to come and we've been here ever since and we haven't regretted a second of it. So it's been really, really good to us. So we're very grateful for that. Oh, Melbourne's certainly locked out gaining you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your experiences in Australia, perhaps compared to any preconceived notions you may have had about Australia? Absolutely. So I think, I mean, definitely I grew up watching Home and Away and Neighbours. So I was convinced that I was going to be on the beach every day, you know, sipping on a drink, like relaxing after work. Um, but Melbourne weather, unfortunately, <laughs> doesn't, doesn't allow for that all of the time sometimes certainly um so yeah like I think definitely I had this preconceived idea that it was going to be sunny all the time and I think part of what has maybe assisted with the the lack of homesickness is the fact that Melbourne is is so you know it's quite similar to Ireland in that sense of the kind of interchangeable weather all the time so that was certainly one thing that I, I kind of took a bit of getting used to and even today you know yesterday I was playing a match and it was hailstoning down on top of me and it did very much feel like I was you know on a pitch in Limerick <laughs> waiting for the ball to be thrown up um 
So yeah, that's one. But I guess on a deeper level, definitely Australia has surprised me in the sense of, for one, I think, you know, I came out here not knowing much about things like the Aboriginal culture that was here. Um, and I've been really fortunate enough through work to have received a lot of training in that and a lot of kind of, I work in mental health. So I've attended training on specific mental health exam or assessments for, for people, you know, from the Aboriginal culture. And it's really opened up my eyes into all this rich history that's here in Australia that I didn't really know much about before I came. Um, so that's been something that's been really, really eye-opening and, and really exciting to learn about as well, especially as, as the country itself, you know, embraces it and, and recognises it too. So that's been really good. Um, aside from that, I think just the general multiculturalism of Melbourne has really been swept up. I think the first month that we got here, we were jumping into everything and anything that we could. And there was, you know, Chinese festivals, Greek festivals, Irish festivals, and we were going to everything, you know, just to try to get a taste of the place. Um, so I think that's been really, really surprising, but also very um, enjoyable to, to partake in that kind of thing. So yeah, it's a real melting pot. Yeah, which is great. It certainly is. I mean, it's great to hear about the Indigenous connection there. I think Irish people and Australian mm-hmm. Indigenous people have had some great connections over the years. So it's wonderful yeah. to see that continuing. Absolutely, yeah. And even quite recently, I went to the Ireland Funds dinner and there was a huge connection between both. And it's just really, really reassuring to see that happening, which is really nice. So. Absolutely. I think they're fundraising with that dinner for the Go Foundation, which does mm-hmm. incredible work for Indigenous education. So yes, it's yes. Very sad to be supportive of. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's fantastic. I've never heard Melbourne's uh, four seasons in a day use something to a weekend. <laughs> <laughs> so I know, it's yeah. quite, I mean, look, every cloud, silver lining. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Literally. <laughs> Literally and figuratively, yeah. Exactly. Um, now, you mentioned before that you are the 2019 Melbourne Rose of Truly mm-hmm. winner, and congratulations on that. Thank you so much. Thank you. For those listeners who may not be too familiar with competition, what can you tell us about it? That's an interesting question, and one that I've very much been posed with, I think, since I won the Melbourne Rose. I work with a lot of people, um, you know, both Australians and, and people from different cultures and countries and it, I find myself you know trying making efforts to explain what it is and it's quite funny I think to think of people's maybe preconceived ideas once you begin to explain what it is um, and, and we can get into that you know throughout the discussion but essentially it's it's one of Ireland's oldest and longest running festivals um, it's an international festival and this year is its 60th year so roughly 60 years ago in a small town of Trudy in Kerry um, a group of people in a pub thought about this idea um, to to kind of revive um, an older festival. Um, And it's essentially based off of the song, The Rose of Shirlene. So it selects a young woman every year to be crowned the rose. Um, So originally, I think, you know, the lines of the song have, you know, elements like that she was lovely and fair and, you know, the truth in her eyes, ever dawning, that kind of thing. So I think that was kind of the basis in which they were selecting their, you know, the selection criteria for the festival. So it began in Tralee and initially it was just open to women from Tralee. Then it expanded into Kerry, then it expanded across Ireland and now it's expanded across the world. So luckily enough, you know, I'm eligible to, to go myself. Um, and with that expansion of, of opening itself up, you know, to the wider, I guess, international community of, of Irish women and Irish women and women from, let's say, Australia and those kind of places that have some sort of ancestral connection with Ireland. Um, it's also evolved into much more than than just, you know, a simple celebration of a woman. It's it's very much looking at everything. You know, I think the preconceived idea is that maybe it's, it's based on the beauty pageant aspect of things. And it, it definitely has similarities in the sense of the, the overall setup. I mean, the women, we wear sashes, you know, some women get a crown when they win their, their region. But it's so much more than that. You know, it's a celebration of, of women and their strength and their confidence and 
for risk of sounding, you know, cheesy, the inner beauty that, that people have. And, you know, it's a really, really exciting festival to be part of. So I'm very, very proud. But yeah, it's expanded a lot in the last 60 years and it's it's grown a lot as society has within Ireland as well. And I think it's a true reflection of that too. So, and you can see that in the, the diversity of women that have been represented on the stage and, and the women who have won the Rose of Chile in the last few years, which is really promising. Of course, it's great to see the institution kind of moving with the times. Mm, absolutely. The yeah. I remember attending the last couple of balls here in Melbourne and just seeing all the women who were participating mm. and just seeing their talents, uh, their values, what drives them. Absolutely. And seeing them making such a big difference in their communities. Mm-hmm. So Huge. It's really great to see so many women doing these incredible yeah, things yeah. festival that really celebrates that. Absolutely. It's it's so uplifting. It's I remember standing on the stage in Melbourne and looking around me and like just I mean the fantastic women that are there and it's just I mean a huge honor to be able to go on and represent that. But definitely it takes a minute like you take a minute to stop and think and you're like wow this is something to be so proud of. Um you know you're the other side of the world in Melbourne. And I mean, I shared the stage with with Irish women and Australian women with Irish heritage. And it was just such a special moment, I think, to be able to, to do that. So yeah, Definitely. very grateful for that. I just should be very proud as well. Mm. And what I love seeing at the ball is that there are so many young people who are supporting these different women and yeah. men and women supporters. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is really great to see. Mm-hmm. So when you entered, what did you kind of hope to achieve when you went to the competition? I think... To maybe take a step back, when I first came to Ireland, I attended the Rose Ball, so in May of 2018, um, to support a friend of mine who was entering. So I think, you know, up until then, I had always watched the Rose of Chile. I was always a fan of the Rose of Chile. And I think it's one of those things where you you don't actually ever think that, oh my God, could this happen to me? You know, could I be the person that's standing on the stage and, and waving out? And so I went to the ball and I think have, I kind of found a newfound confidence coming to Australia as well. And it's a case where you, you kind of throw yourself into the new and, and you just kind of see what happens. And I mean, we left Ireland to challenge ourselves and to, you know, and explore new experiences. So that night I kind of said to myself, I was like, geez, you know, I could really kind of, I could see myself entering this, you know, and, and just to see where it goes. So part of it was definitely for my own kind of, I guess, personal growth and personal development to kind of push myself a little bit and think, okay, you know, why not? You know, if I could think of a good reason why not to enter, you know, I probably would have, you know, because I mean, it's relatively nerve wracking to, to go through the process, but certainly I couldn't think of anything that was going to stop me from doing it. So it was one of my goals for 2019. And I think for me personally, it's, it's, an opportunity to, I guess, further emphasize the fact that there is no such thing as a typical Irish woman. You know, there is no such thing as a typical Rose of Tralee. You know, we're, we're all shapes and sizes. You know, we come from all different types of backgrounds. But at the end of the day, the end goal is the same in terms of a celebration of women, essentially, um, by both men and women, which I think is really special. So I think that's kind of essentially what I was trying to achieve is, is to put myself out there and also just to kind of display, I guess, you know, that we all have our own individual strengths and characteristics at the same time, nobody's perfect. I'm far from it. <laughs> um, and I think that's, you know, I would love to continue on in this journey, just being myself and being very kind of real and authentic. And I think, you know, the Rose of Chile definitely allows you to do that. So it's yeah, very exciting. And it's actually the diversity of the candidates mm. who are different competitions and women from yes. so, so many different backgrounds. Women who aren't afraid to take a particular stance on something, mm-hmm. but again, working to that goal of celebrating Irish women. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 absolutely. We've spoken a bit about kind of the idea of a beauty pageant seeing a little less and less relevant in the mm-hmm. century. Um, how do you think the Rosa Trilly competition kind of sets itself apart as a competition that empowers women and celebrates their talents? Mm-hmm. It's an interesting one. And I think for me personally, I've 
I've been through my own kind of journey with with all of that side of things in terms of beauty standards and, you know, being a woman in 2019, what's expected of you? And there's a lot of, of talk emerging at the moment in terms of aspects of, of body positivity, but also essentially body neutrality, where there's a recognition that we are, you know, we are not as we're not exactly our bodies. You know, our bodies are, you know, a means in which we can portray ourselves to the outside world, no doubt about it. But at the same time, it's not the be all and end all of who you are. So I think me personally, I've kind of come through that in the last few years where I've been through patches of being very, very, I guess, strict with myself and very self-conscious in terms of, you know, how I look. And for me, when I eventually decided to enter the Rosa Tralee, it wasn't anything that kind of came to the forefront of my mind in terms of the emphasis on your physical appearance. And I think if you actually look back over the years, it's been one of the festivals where in a sense, it's ahead of its time. You know, I think it's it's almost like it was never really, it was never about the beauty, if you know what I mean. And I think that's very, very special. I think definitely in terms of maybe public, I don't want to say misconceptions because I think, you know, you look at on stage, you see women in ball gowns and with a crown and a sash, you know, you could be forgiven for thinking that it is a beauty pageant. But I think what's inherent to the Rosa Tralee is that it, it knows its values and it, it knows why it's doing what it's doing. And it knows its message. And I think that is not external beauty. And, and for me, I think because it's so strong in, in, in holding on to that, it was easy for me to enter and, and not feel that pressure of, of looking a certain way or being a certain size or, you know, portraying a, a certain polished look all of the time, because that's just not who I am. And I think the fact that I'm willing and so excited to enter the festival, you know, and I also have those own personal values myself of, of not putting too much emphasis on my personal appearance. I think it kind of, it counteracts anything that might be mis- misconstrued as being a beauty pageant. So, yeah. yeah. I think that's incredibly relatable. And I love the idea of the rose competition being something that uh, embraces body positivity, but mm-hmm. also accepts people with their flaws. For Absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> we all have them. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, no, it's, it's definitely something that I'm proud to, to put my name on. And I think, um, that would also be something that I would hope to portray and hope to to kind of represent when I do enter or when I do get to Tralee is, you know, of course, I mean, anyone in the public eye, the way I kind of thought about it myself was if you had a, a GAA all-star who was attending his all-star ball, of course, he's going to put on a suit and he's going to gel his hair and he's going to, you know, put him his best physical appearance forward. But that's not what people are looking at. They're looking at his, his hurling or his Gaelic talents. You know, they're looking at what he's contributed to his team throughout the season. And I think essentially it's a bit of a, a random kind of comparison, but with the Rosa Tralee, of course, we're going to, you know, put on our, our dresses and we're going to, you know, put our best face forward, but that's not what it's about. It's about who we are as people. And I think that's really important to emphasize. Yeah, that's a great analogy. Really mm. <laughs> um, now you work as a forensic mental health occupational therapist in Victoria's correction system. Mm-hmm. Um, without wanting to draw a link between the two, mental health and crime have really dominated Melbourne's news cycles over the last couple yeah, of years. Yeah. I was wondering what you could tell us about your work. So I guess, I mean, I definitely have to be somewhat careful in, in terms of what I talk about, but I'm, I'm happy to share what I do. Essentially, I work in the prison services. So I work in a maximum security men's prison um, in Victoria, and I'm part of the acute psychiatric team there. So essentially it means I, I work in mental health basically so we're the kind of I guess the front yard service of of men who are coming into the um, prison services in Victoria so we get presented with men who either have established acute psychiatric illnesses or suspected of having them um, and basically what we do is is 
tend to their mental health needs while they're in the prison. So we have a specific mental health unit that I work in. But we also have some outpatient programs as well that do some outreach in, into the broader part of the prison. And as you can imagine, I think uh, I read a statistic recently and it was a huge percentage of, of people with mental illnesses are at a, an increased risk of, of either being involved in crime or being the victims of crime. And I think it definitely correlates to aspects such as homelessness, lack of family support, um, you know, whatever barriers there are to engaging community services. You know, it's this whole cyclical aspect of, of these different elements of someone's life that kind of impact upon them. And, you know, unfortunately, at times end up in them ending up into the, in the prison services. So I think, I mean, there is no doubt that there, not that there is a link, but there's a definite overrepresentation of people with mental illnesses in prison at the moment. Within Victoria, there's currently um, a Royal Commission into Mental Health occurring. So basically what that is, is, is kind of I look into the mental health services within the state um, in an effort to improve them and to improve the, the service for the, the consumers as well. So I think they're at the stage now where they're actually going into the communities and getting that lived experience from people who have mental health difficulties in terms of how they found working with services, what have been the barriers um, and, and what improvements can be made from their perspective in terms of enhancing that system. So I think there's an interim report coming out in October of this year, or sorry, August of this year, and then in October 2020 will be the full report um, from the Royal Commission. And the state has actually made, I guess, a guarantee that it's going to fulfil the recommendations from that, which is really promising. So I think there's definitely, you know, a heightened sense of of coverage within the media of the link between mental health and, and you know, certain offences. But I think the, the state itself is, is definitely working towards um, trying to alleviate that and trying to lessen it and, and improve the system for everybody. Um, from my perspective, I do feel, you know, I guess I'm dealing with, with people who are after having the worst day of their lives, essentially, you know, um, and they also have a mental illness um, or mental health difficulties. And, you know, you're combining the two and it's just such a, it's a really hard hitting place to work at times. And it's, you know, it's, it's got its fair share of, of difficult and sad stories. But at the same time, there's always that element of hope as well. So, I mean, just because somebody has got a mental health difficulty and they've ended up in prison, it doesn't mean that that's the end of the road for them. And I think that's really something that I've held on to in my job. I think that's part of my role is to instill that sense of hope that this is not the end. This is maybe, you know, a catalyst for change for some people. And, and that's really kind of exciting to be part of someone's life during those discussions as well so and sometimes it takes a few times you know sometimes it takes um there is you know a certain level of recidivism so people coming back into the system which is unfortunate but i think you know sometimes it has to happen a few times in order for the change to occur um and for the right services to be put in place so yeah it's very interesting definitely yeah, um so that's a very perfect perspective yeah yeah absolutely and again i think you know, people often ask me, God, how do you do what you do? Or how do you work where you work? And, you know, it's, I would have asked the same question, you know, maybe a year and a half ago. And if someone told me a few years back that I'd be, first of all, living in Melbourne, I'd be like, oh my God, really? Home and away? <laughs> Here I come. Um, nice. Yeah. <laughs> but that I'd be, um, you know, that I'd be working in the prison services, you know, in this maximum security men's prison. It, it sounds, you know, quite, quite harsh and, and quite a difficult place to work. But the reality is so different. And I think it's only when you're part of the system that you begin to kind of realize and, and your eyes get to be opened a little bit more in terms of, you know, it, it isn't necessarily what the media 
display it to be. Um, and, and at the end of the day, these people are people, you know, and the only thing that, that maybe sets me aside from the person sitting across the table is, is chance. You know, like I was lucky enough to grow up in, you know, a middle-class family where I was well-supported and good education. Um, we didn't, you know, have any, I guess, hard-hitting challenges throughout my life. Um, and I was very, very lucky to be part of a loving family as well and, and linked in with my community. And I guess a lot of the men that I work with maybe haven't had that or they've had maybe traumatic experiences happen to them. And I guess the thing that really resonates with me, with me is that there's always a narrative. There's always a story. And there's a quote that says, you know, don't ask what I've done, you know, ask what's happened to me. So it's something that I kind of hold on to that helps me get through the working day as well. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was interesting bringing about the Royal Commission to Mental Health mm-hmm. which is finding those taking submissions at the moment. There was one submission I read about um, by a North Melbourne Premiership footballer. Mm-hmm. So a man who's kind of at the top of the game. Yeah. And at the time that he won the grand final some years ago, he mm-hmm. would have seen the midst of terrible, terrible depression. I know. Yeah. And so when you see someone who's just so talented and fortunate and yeah. so well suffering from such severe mental health issues, mm-hmm. it's not surprising that to see them affecting people far more vulnerable who might absolutely be yeah yeah and there is there's huge statistics of you know that people with mental health illnesses you know with the comorbid factors of being homeless and maybe lacking support you know there's statistics to say that they even sometimes will you know admit to crimes that they didn't commit because they're, they're presenting as so disorganized or they might not recall what happened exactly and you know they're just so so vulnerable in that state But definitely when you expand that out into the broader population, and I think that's something that has helped me with even establishing elements of therapeutic rapport with the people that I work with is, you know, nobody, as far as I know, has really goes through life unscathed from mental health. And I think we all experience it in different ways and and through different intensities. But for me, myself, like I've definitely, you know, been through some some days that were much darker than you would have liked them to be. Um, Absolutely. And and thankfully, you know, I've had the support of my family and I've had the support of services that I could call upon to be able to get me through that. And I think that's also a very privileged position to be in, to be able to access those and to be able to come out on the other side of it. But yeah, in terms of the general population, I mean, it's something and I, I do think that the conversation is opening up. And I think especially in Ireland where, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago, if you were to see a man crying in public, you'd think, my goodness, you know, it would be talk of the town, whereas now it's there's a huge emphasis in into men's mental health as, as well as women's mental health as well, which really needed to happen. And it's really, you know, it's quite encouraging to think that the conversation and the dialogue is opening up a lot more recently, which is it good. Really is. And it's very mm. similar in Australia. I think we're making big leaps in terms of particularly giving men that space mm-hmm. to be open about their emotions, their feelings, yeah. their mental state. Yeah. I think there's probably the idea that it's harder in general for men to do that, mm-hmm. but it seems to be easier for women to do that. Yeah. So while it's great that we support both genders in terms of mental health, it's really great Absolutely. that we make that space for men to so say, you can put your hand up and say you're not yeah. okay. We won't judge you. There are support yeah. options available. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I'm very conscious of that sometimes through my work as well, and I'm conscious that I'm, a young woman, you know, asking a man who who might be 10, 20, 30, 40 years older than me to open up and, and to start talking about those kind of things. And it's a really um, interesting kind of way to go about things. And, and you, you end up drawing upon things that you never thought you would to, to start that conversation and to engage. Um, and through occupational therapy, we tend to rely a lot on the aspect of doing. So, you know, I might end up doing a bit of a cooking group or an art group and you know through the doing you're kind of also talking and it begins to open up a little bit more um but even one really impressive aspect of australia is the concept of men's sheds so that's obviously originated from here 
Um, but I first learned about that through my studies back in Ireland. And there's been a lot of men's sheds set up there as well. And I think that's such an important message to get out as well, that, you know, it's supporting men to get together, to start tinkering about with different bits and pieces and whether it's carpentry or metalwork and just to get that conversation opening up a little bit more as well is really important yeah so great to hear that's such a great answer yeah 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 absolutely very popular Uh, so how have you engaged with the Irish community while you've been in Melbourne so I'm very lucky at the moment I think well initially the first week that I landed um, myself and my partner landed in Melbourne airport and we knew maybe one or two people over here um, from back home, so from Ireland. So we obviously reached out to them a little bit. Um, but then the first week that I came here, it was very random. My cousin is actually, he plays um, for the band in Celtic Women. So they're the Irish um, singing group. So we ended up going to the Rod Labour Arena here in Melbourne and watching him play and obviously listening to the concert as well. So that was my first taste. I, I, my feet had barely touched the ground here and I was already carted off to, you know, an Irish um, event. But that was the first taste of, of looking around at this massive audience, you know, this huge arena. Um, and all, all they were there for was to absorb Irish culture, you know, and it was full of Australians. It was full of the Irish diaspora. It was full of people who were maybe in Melbourne on holidays. Um, and, you know, myself and my partner who just landed and we were like in a bit of a whirlwind ourselves anyway, trying to get organized. But it was the first kind of initial taste of, OK, we're far from home, but we're not actually that far from home. You know, there's always this bit of a link. Um, and since then... I've actually, so I came over, I was never much of a Gaelic footballer back at home. I tried my hand at camogie a little bit and unfortunately my talents seemed to lie elsewhere in in that respect as well. But I really wanted to get involved in a bit of a team sport because obviously you're moving to a new country and you want to meet new friends and, and kind of expand that social network a little bit. So I ended up joining a team called Powerhouse AFC. So they had, last year was their first year of having a women's club. So Australian football, essentially. Um, and it turned out that half of the team just ended up being Irish. So I didn't know before I came down. And then I went to my first training and I could hear like a Donegal accent. I could hear a Meath accent. I could hear a Cork accent. And I was like, I thought I came down here to meet like, you know, Australians <laughs> to get involved in that. So it's essentially been the best of both worlds because there is half the team which are Irish. And I think you're always going to have that connection with people from from Ireland in the sense of having moved over and, you know, we're... We all have visa chats. We all chat about FaceTiming our parents, you know, all that kind of stuff. But also the other half of the team are Australian. We had some people from Brazil, some people from all over America, everything. And it was just a really nice kind of cultural melting pot of a team. So I've definitely kind of kept a bit of an Irish connection through the players that I play with, but also dipping my toes into the Australian culture at the same time, which has been really, really nice. Um, And on top of that, then one of the first things that I also did was attend the Rosa Tralee Ball last year. And I think, again, that was really kind of a part of me. Like I sat back and I remember calling my parents the next day and I said, I actually feel like I've been to the Rosa Tralee. Like it was a huge event, like so well organized. Um, and I'd really encourage anybody that was half thinking of ever going to go. It's such an amazing experience. It's very nice. It's a huge life. Yeah. It's amazing to see how many particularly young Irish people there. Yeah, so. it's so encouraging. Um, and whether, like, I mean, I had some Australian friends come as well who'd never heard of the Rose of Chalee. And I remember talking to them afterwards and they were like, this is a, like, obviously it was good for them because I won. So they were extra <laughs> happy. But like, this is amazing. Like, what is this? And, and trying to explain, you know, what the Rose of Chalee is. Um, and then like your your usual kind of um, St. Patrick's Day celebrations and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, we definitely go for, you know, a typical Irish breakfast in some of the Irish pubs um, during the weekend and, and some nice dinners and things like that. And then for, since winning the Melbourne Rose of Trilly, I was lucky enough to go to the Ireland Funds dinner here in Melbourne. 
Um, and yeah, really, really lucky to get involved in, in those kind of organizations since as well. So I think especially down where I live in Melbourne, you're never going to walk that far without hearing an Irish accent, which is really encouraging. Like it's really comforting, I think. And I think that's really alleviated the sense of homesickness because it does feel essentially like a home away from home. Yeah, that's wonderful to hear you kind of embracing mm. the options in this. At the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And finally, what's left on your bucket list for your time in Australia? Oh, goodness. Um, time and money There is a lot. <laughs> the first thing that's staring down at me at the moment is um, I, I have this habit of making promises to myself of things that I'm going to do. And then I... I decide that I'm going to do going to do it and I commit to it. And then I realize actually there's a lot that needs to go into it. So one of them is I've, I've told myself that I'm going to run the Melbourne Marathon in October. So I did the half marathon last year and you finish in the MCG, which is a, a huge stadium here in, in Melbourne. It's fantastic. So I ran that last year and then I finished and I, I turned to my friend and I said, I was never going to run ever again. Like it was, you know, That's enjoyable. But, <laughs> but I was like, never again. So anyway, the conversation opened up again a few weeks ago and myself and my partner, John, were thinking and, you know, we were talking about bucket lists, essentially. Um, and yeah, the, the concept of the marathon came up and we were like, OK, like so we just decided to do it. So I have my training schedule on my fridge now and I'm due to go for a run today. I don't know will it happen or not. But that's one thing that I definitely want to do is, is to run the Melbourne Marathon. And you're essentially you're running through the city. It's it's so beautiful. It's fantastic. It's it's on kind of in the start of the summer. So hopefully it won't be too warm. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So so that's definitely one thing that's on the bucket list. Aside, excuse me, aside from that, definitely you know, more traveling around Australia is, is on my bucket list. I've been really lucky in the sense that I've been to Uluru and, and Cairns and the Great Ocean Road and those kind of things, but I'd love to maybe travel the East Coast a little bit more. Um, and yeah, I think just kind of taking every day as it comes and, and continuing to push myself um, in these kind of different aspects, whether it's professionally or personally. And I think Melbourne really gives you that good kind of foundation base to be able to work off that. So yeah, it's exciting to see what the future holds. And even looking back now, I mean, I've done so much here that I never thought that I would do I've I've done my first skydive in Melbourne I ate my first oyster in Melbourne all these you know they range from the small to the big but it's it's such a the mindset here is is definitely one of embracing and trying new things and adventure and that's really exciting to think about what the future might hold here that's fantastic well John this has been a fantastic um chat about the rise of Chile about mm-hmm. empowering women and how kind of work on mental health is just yeah. doing so much in Melbourne for their people as well mm-hmm. thank you so much for joining us you're so welcome thank you for having me you can follow Jordan's adventures in the Rose of Tralee competition via Instagram at Melbourne Rose of Tralee Last month, the Irish Minister for Diaspora, Kieran Cannon, discussed the upcoming referendum to extend Ireland's presidential vote to overseas citizens. One article I found interesting this month was an Irish Times Abroad feature on reader responses to this announcement. Five key themes emerged, and several stood out to me. One was that there was no consensus on whether or not overseas citizens should have a vote. Another is that there were also concerns that a conservative diaspora overseas not in line with contemporary Ireland could influence an outcome considerably. You can find this article in the show notes. If you enjoyed the Irish Passport podcast series on dairy I mentioned last month, don't miss the recent episode of United Ireland on Dairy. This episode examines the impact of the murder of journalist Lyra McKee on the dairy community, with insights from Lyra's partner and friends. It sums up Lyra's talents as a journalist and the resilience of dairy despite looming uncertainties around Brexit. It's also great listening ahead of season two of Dairy Girls coming to Netflix Australia and New Zealand this August. Stay tuned for more on that next month. It may still be winter, but there are plenty of Melbourne Irish events worth getting out into the cold for this month. 
The Melbourne International Film Festival, otherwise known as MIF, kicks off on the 1st of August. MIF season is one of my favourite times of the year in Melbourne, along with the comedy festival and the first few rounds of the AFL season when my beloved team is still in with a chance. Anyway, there are several Irish features in this year's MIF program. One is Rosie, written by Roddy Doyle and depicting a family navigating the Irish housing crisis. Another is Extraordinary, a supernatural comedy which won Best Irish Feature at the recent Galway Film Fla. Up-and-coming Irish director Lorcan Finnegan will also be in town to discuss his sci-fi horror film, Vivarian. You can find more details at myth.com.au, but I recommend downloading the Myth app to browse and manage your bookings. Do book early. Myth Film Screenings are limited and book out quickly. Getting in early, the Island Funds Australia Global 5K takes place on Sunday the 8th of September and will raise funds for the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. Yarra Bend Park is the setting for this year's 5K run, and if you need any extra motivation, the run will finish with a barbecue. You can register at the link in the show notes. Finally, another event not to miss this August is Barry vs. Kelly, an original musical drama about the trial and execution of Ned Kelly and Judge Redmond Barry. A play about two very different Irish Australians, Barry vs. Kelly has been performed around country Victoria to rave reviews. Here's a sneak peek from writer and director Felix Ma on what to expect. Felix, thank you for joining us today. Could you tell us a little bit about the play Barry vs. Kelly? Yeah, sure. Very, um, very much so. Um, we, um, I got interested in the story of Ned Kelly as a child. And um, it's a very compelling and intriguing story mainly because people have such different views about, about Ned Kelly and the classic one is, you know, villain or, he- villain or hero. But it was really um, brought home to me one time when I was driving with our family. We were driving, we have four children and three sons and the oldest son at that stage was about eight. And we passed this um, statue of Captain Moonlight uh, and he was a, a bush ranger, and my son was asking me about, you know, Captain Moonlight, and um, then we got on to Ned Kelly, and we're driving well, from northern New South Wales to Sydney, so it was a long drive, so he'd ask a question, and I'd give him an answer, and then about half an hour ago, and he'd go, Dad, what happened to Ned Kelly? You know, and then I'd try and answer the question and he'd ask me questions like that and he'd think about it for a while and Dad, was Ned Kelly a good man? So the story of Ned Kelly, I think, intrigues us from a moral point of view and with good reason, you know. It's a, it's a very interesting story. So um, the story about the judge as well, and the judge, of course, was a famous man and recognised as a pillar of society, but also um, a rather interesting man as well. So the whole morality of the story um, I found very interesting. So what I tried to do was write a musical story that, that tells why those characters did what they did. Um, I don't know how well your well your listeners are going to know the story of Ned Kelly, but the thing that intrigued me, the question that intrigued me mostly was, why didn't Ned Kelly run away? He could have run away. 
and there's a line in the play and it's 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 a historical fiction and there's a line where his mother uh, says to him just to know you in America would have made every day in here a lot e- easier so from her point of view she'd be happy for him to run away but um, he felt he couldn't you know so that's the thing that really intrigued me is why he didn't run away and he could have had a very good life in life in America because the Americans are mad keen on Irish rebels. So um, it's an intriguing story and I wanted to tell just a little bit of the Ned Kelly story because I've seen the films and seen the shows and I think um, sometimes a lot of the unsatisfactory nature of the films and the shows is that they try and tell the whole epic story. So I just... So Barry versus Kelly is just about the last few days of Ned's life and... Of course, you might know that the judge died 12 days later. So it's about those two characters and why they did what they did and what they believed and what happened. You mentioned before that Ned Kelly has lent itself to a whole range of different art forms oh, and yeah. media. Oh. Um, what made you think a musical was a good way to tell the story? Well, I'm a musician and I, I write music and I've written musicals before, so it was my natural way of trying to do it. Um, And there was a song that I already had that I thought would suit uh, Ned's father. It's a song called The Evening Star and he sings about how um, um, Ireland for him is, he he has this dream that one day he'd go back back to Ireland. And, of course, Ned was brought up with... Um, a love of Ireland, although, of course, he was Australian-born and he never went there, but his father um, instilled a love of Ireland. So I already had one song that I thought might sort of fiddle a little bit of the story and, you know, sometimes these things just write themselves, you know, you just, you can't, you know, you write a little bit and you like it and you just keep going, you know. And can you tell us a little bit about the uh, the actors and musicians who are going to be bringing this story to life? Okay, well, it's the cast of five, uh, sorry, six actors, and they play about ten roles. So um, so there's Ned and the judge, and I play the judge. Um, there's Ned's mum and Ned's dad has a smaller role. There's, um, there's the chief secretary, Chief Secretary Berry, and there's the uh, the chief of police. Um, there's also, uh, and this is quite fictional, there's also uh, Judge Barry's, well, wife, which is not fictional, but also there's a character which is his nurse, and the nurse is called Chloe. And around the time of, of the trial and the, in the execution, the painting Chloe was being exhibited at the exhibition buildings, which is just just down the road. So his nurse, um, Chloe, has a sort of a nighttime role as <laughs> Chloe. <laughs> she's an e- entertainer. Uh, so they, uh, she's one of the characters. So, um, yeah, so there's six characters. Um, sorry, six actors and about ten ca- characters. And a narrator. So the narrator character is the jailer of, of the prison. And then we have two musicians who play guitars and bass and 
Fantastic. Well, Barry, Barry versus Kelly sounds like one not to miss. Felix, thanks so much for joining us. Barry versus Kelly is on at the Celtic at Metropolitan in North Melbourne on Saturday the 31st of August at 8.15pm and you can find the online bookings link in the show notes. To take us out, please enjoy Loyal Son, performed by Cora Brown as Eileen Kelly from Barry vs. Kelly. Thanks for listening to the Celtic Club Melbourne podcast. Don't forget to share, rate and review us and you can reach us at Celtic Club Melbourne podcast at gmail.com. Bye for now. Sláinte.